It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, I've been walking through some glimpses from the testimony of Darlene Dibler, who's one of my missionary heroes. And we've been able to listen to excerpts of her testimony, which have been just truly amazing. And she was, for those of you who haven't been following this series or have not caught those episodes, she was a young, young missionary in her early 20s, an American girl from Iowa who married a missionary, went overseas to New Guinea, and was really, had a vision for the unreached in the interior of New Guinea. And she and her husband were just establishing one of the very first mission works in the interior of New Guinea when World War II started, and they had to come back to the coast. She was taken prisoner by the Japanese, and her husband was taken prisoner. She was put into concentration camp for a long time. Her husband was killed, and she was sentenced to death as an American spy. So she had a very dramatic life, very early in her missionary days, and her testimony is truly one of the most powerful that I have ever heard. And just reading her book, which is called Evidence Not Seen, as I've, said throughout, <clears throat> as I've said throughout this series, I read this book at a time in my life when I was really going through a struggle and really going through a dark time. And watching her walk through such extreme struggles with such incredible triumph and victory because of the grace of God was something that just lifted me out of that place of despair and gave me a vision that I truly can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then being able to hear some of those audio clips of her testimony 40, 50 years after these events took place, and she still speaks about those years of her life with such passion, with such emotion, because she remembers the presence and the faithfulness of God. Truly astounding. Well, I'm sort of out of audio, audio clips to play for you, and I, I feel like you listening to me talk about her is not as powerful as you listening to her, but I'm going to do my best to give you some highlights from her book that really, really impacted me that she didn't cover in her audio testimony, and so this is called Glimmers of Gold, and the reason that I titled it this was because one of the themes I see in Darlene's life is that gold refiner's fire, that gold refined in the fire, that God is constantly shaping her into that pure refined gold. And if you caught some of the previous episodes, I've studied the refining process of gold, and it's truly incredible because it, the heat that is put on gold to refine it is so high. I mean, it's like 21,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It can be up to that temperature. And the gold melts, the impurities rise to the surface, and what you are left with, with is this pure, un, undefiled, refined gold, pure gold. And if you ever just Google the question, can pure gold be destroyed? Once it's in that pure state, it can't be destroyed. It's indestructible. The only thing you can do is dissolve it with chemicals, and even then you just spread it around. You cannot actually destroy it. And I, I see that so clearly in Darlene's story that her faith, her, her relationship with Jesus Christ became indestructible, no matter what they tried to do with her to her because of that refining process. So we're going to look at some additional glimmers of gold that I saw in her life throughout her book, Evidence Not Seen. One of the reasons I love Christian biographies, this is something I maybe should have said earlier in the study, but I thought I would just share it with you today. You know, a lot of people say, well, Christian biographies set an unrealistic expectation for the Christian life because they're about these amazing men and women who just conquered the world and did these incredible things, and those are, those are special Christians. We don't all have that kind of a life. 
And what I love about biographies is actually the opposite of that mentality because I see ordinary, everyday men and women who didn't have any special qualities about them except for just a complete availability to God, a willingness for God to take their life and let it be consecrated to him. That is why I love Christian biographies because it shows us that these men and women were not perfect and they also didn't have extraordinary abilities. They simply had a heart of complete willingness in how God powerfully used them and worked through them. And I also know that there are hundreds and thousands of men and women who walked that same path who we may never know their story this side of heaven, but it, it paints that amazing picture of what the true Christian life looks like and what it can look like lived out in the life of a man or a woman who makes themselves available to God. I don't believe that there are just a few special Christians in every generation. I believe it's something that we are all called to, even though it might be, look a little different for each of us. We might not all be called to be a, a prisoner in a Japanese war camp, but we are called to live out those same principles of victorious faith and dependence on God. So we talked, as we walked through Darlene's story, the first episode that I shared with you was called Never For A Moment, and it was based on the mentality, never for a moment are we out of his sight. No matter what happens, he is trustworthy, he is faithful. He will take all that the enemy means for evil in our life and turn it to good. He will take the ashes of our life and turn it into something beautiful when we trust him. That is one of the amazing things that I saw over and over and over again in Darlene's life. Even when it seemed like God had sort of abandoned her so many times. She felt like, where are you, God? You say, you say you never leave me or forsake me, but I can't see you working here. I choose to trust you. And you would see God redeem these situations. The, the, one of the most powerful aspects of her story is she had trekked into the interior of New Guinea and was establishing a missionary work with her husband, Russell. And one, she was the first woman. He was the first man into the interior, and she was the first woman. And really was, just loved the people, was so excited excited for that opportunity, and it seemed like God was cutting it short. Right as she was getting established, she had to be pulled out of that, and she had this little tribal boy that called her mother, and she had to say goodbye to him, and she said that day when she said goodbye to him, she didn't know it would be nine years and a war before she would ever see him again. All that happened in, in those nine years, she never would have imagined it, but yet when it seemed like her dreams had just turned to ash, God revived them, and she was able to go back to New Guinea after the war with her second husband, who also had a passion for the interior of New Guinea, and their two boys, and she spent over 40 years there. So God's dreams that he puts in our hearts, they don't return void, even though sometimes we give up before we see the end of the story. The second episode was called, Lord, I'm Available. It's that unconditional availability to God, and that is what I would say is the quality of every true missionary, is unconditional availability to God. We see missionaries that go because they think it's romantic to go overseas, or they think it sounds exciting, or they think it seems spiritual, or they just want to get away from things here in their lives here, so let me just go somewhere. But every true missionary, where you're, whether you're called to be a missionary right in your own culture, your own community, or whether you're called to go to the other side of the world, it's that unconditional Lord I'm available that makes a true missionary that God can truly work through to impact this world. And then the last time I spoke on Darlene, I, it was called at Nothing to be a of how she went into the most terrifying situations and because she leaned completely on Jesus Christ she gained greater courage not it didn't weaken her and make her more fearful it made her stronger and more bold gold refined in the fire 
So I'd like to walk you through a few excerpts from her book of additional glimmers of gold that I've seen in Darlene's life. And the first one is the fellowship of the saints. This is something she didn't talk about in her audio testimony, but it's miraculous unity that was built among her fellow missionaries in the trenches, in the most difficult of situations. If you remember the audio clip, she talked about how the Japanese came. They were all living at this mission station up in the hills on the coast in New Guinea, Dutch New Guinea, and they came and they took all the men away except for one older man named Dr. Jaffrey, who was like a spiritual father to Darlene. They took all the men away, and they kept them under house arrest, and they said to the women and to Dr. Jaffrey, if you leave this home, you will be shot on sight. So they didn't make any provision for food or supplies. They just had to survive there. And then there came a time when they came back, and they took all the women missionaries and Dr. Jaffrey to a much more difficult living situation. This was before they ended up in the concentration camp. They were moved to this really cramped little shack in the jungle where there were shock troops all around them, and if they, left the, if they left at all, they would be killed. And they had no food at all, and they were all crammed in there in this little shack. And they had to scavenge for bird seed. Like, it was probably like a millet or some kind of grain that they could find just laying around on the ground, and that's the only thing they had to eat. They ate ferns, they ate leaves from the jungle. But it was a very, very stressful situation. And if you take eight people who are suddenly just thrown together in the midst of a very high stress situation, what is the natural human tendency? I know for me, when I'm under stress, even just in family life, the natural human tendency is to snap at other people and be short-tempered with them and have a, have a short patience threshold and allow like petty gripes and concerns to be a lot more noticeable. But this group of missionaries had a different approach to being in cramped quarters together and under a lot of stress. They invited the presence of God into their midst, and they said, we want our relationships with each other to reflect the glory of heaven, not just the fact that we're a bunch of humans under a lot of stress. And this is how Darlene described it. Our house was very small, two tiny rooms, a narrow hall, and a small cubicle for a bathroom. We would have to cook over an open wood fire under a two-person-sized lean-to on the east side of the house, and that's when they could find food. Ruth and I slept on benches in the room that was to function as our dining room. Dr. Jaffrey slept on a narrow bench in the hall, and the others slept on crude wooden benches in the second room. It was all terribly crowded. So you have the crowding and the discomfort, but you also have hunger and stress and fear closing in on them on all sides. And this is what she, how she concluded it. Take seven very individual, independent women, and one, it's supposed to say, and one gentleman, accustomed to being a leader, and put them in cramped quarters such as these, in which we were now being confined, and what do you have? Put God in the midst, and you have that rare and beautiful thing known as the fellowship of the saints. And their love for each other deepened and grew stronger in the midst of their very difficult, uncomfortable, and stressful, stressful circumstances. Only a miracle of God can do that. And as the pressure of their lives intensified, their love for each other grew. In fact, near the end of their time in the concentration camp, Darlene and the other women missionaries had been together under the most horrific conditions for several years. And as that time was drawing to a close, this is how she described their fellowship. In those years of the very closest of associations, there had never been a quarrel or even cross words among us. 
Just imagine that. Never a quarrel or even crosswords among us. I was the youngest, and I needed their counsel, which they freely gave. They had loved me, encouraged me, and supported me in every way. These women of God truly adorned the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am blessed to have known them. How good and pleasant it is for brethren and sisters, she added, to dwell in unity. Psalm 133.1. Now it could have easily gone in the opposite direction, because you see all throughout history, and even stories in your own lives, I'm sure, our own lives, where people people turn on each other in desperate, stressful situations. In fact, I've often told the story of Gladys Elward when she intervened in that men's prison riot. All these men in the village in China where she lived were clubbing each other and, and attacking each other. And when she finally got to the bottom of why they were attacking each other, it's because their conditions were so horrific. They had no food. They had no hope of ever getting out. They were being treated horribly. And the stress of that just kind of came to the surface and they started to take it out on each other in violence. And that is the normal human response. I mean, maybe not uh, a riot or killing someone, but the normal human response is to turn on those around us rather than let difficulty build a greater unity among those we are with. But when the Spirit of God is present and the saints are yielded to him, a miracle can happen. It's that miracle of selfless love. John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's very convicting. You can be the most dedicated Christian, have all the scripture memorized, have this passion for Jesus Christ even, but if you don't have love for the body of Christ, for the other disciples, it's not clear that you're truly following Jesus. Now, it's such an unusual sight to behold, that kind of unity, fellowship of the saints, that kind of selfless, selfless unconditional love, that people will know we are Christ's disciples just by watching the way we treat each other. It's a way of preaching the gospel without words, by seeing the way we treat each other. And those words are, are convicting, like I said, because even under the most stressful of conditions, these missionaries never had a quarrel or even exchanged cross words. It doesn't seem realistic. It's only possible by the grace of God. I think most of us don't even aim that high. Even in our normal, you know, a Christian home or our normal day-to-day -day Christian relationships, we don't expect to go multiple years without even a quarrel or any cross words. But we need to remember that God's enabling grace equips us to do the impossible. Let's set our sights on a goal like that. Because if they can be loving and unified and selfless under those conditions, certainly in our less difficult challenges, we can learn to love each other unconditionally and show that kind of selfless love. So let's make it practical. How do we cultivate that kind of fellowship of the saints? How do we gain that glimmer of gold in our own lives? God's answer is very simple, and it's to deny self. And we, we often overlook this when it comes to our, our relationships with fellow Christians. Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I've, as I've said in many messages, deny in this verse means to forget oneself, to put self out of the way entirely. So sometimes we think about applying that verse to our dreams, our hopes for the future. Are we willing to surrender everything to Christ but do we apply that principle of self-denial to everyday relationships or even to our most challenging relationships? I, I love the story of Amy Carmichael when she, her, her biography that Elizabeth Elliot wrote is called A Chance to Die. And it's based on a specific moment from Amy's life as a young missionary when someone spoke to her sharply or rudely and she was tempted to respond in the flesh 
as she called it, with an angry, flashing remark. That's how she put it, which I can relate to, even though we don't use that language anymore. I can relate to that response that wants to rise up in the flesh and just retaliate, spew something back at them. And yet, God spoke to her in that moment and said, see in this situation a chance to die, an opportunity to die to self. So she did. She chose to say yes to that opportunity. She spoke with gentleness. That relationship was restored, and she carried that principle into the whole rest of her missionary journey until the age of 86 when she died. She lived in that posture of opportunities are there in everyday life to die to self, to put self out of the way, to respond as Christ would respond. And yet most of us don't see it as a privilege or a chance or an opportunity. We see it as, oh, great, I'm supposed to be Christ-like. That's not what I want to do in this situation. She looked at it as a privilege, an opportunity for the grace of God to work in and through her in those everyday moments when she was tempted to splinter relationships by responding in in the flesh. Paul said, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So that death to self is meant to be a daily process. And it's not just an internal thing where we say, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. I die to my own dreams and visions and desires. It's in everyday situations with our family members, with our friends, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When something happens that riles us, are we dying to self in that moment? This is one of the the primary ways that we die daily and take up our cross, is to show unconditional selfless love for others, but it requires the enabling grace of God. Don't try to do this in your own strength because you won't make it a day or two without having the flesh take over. Amy Carmichael explained it this way. Is it not a strength to remember that when we feel our patience wearing thin, that patience toward others is a gift to be had? We can easily get to the end of our own sweetness of spirit, but not to the end of God's. One of my dear friends wrote these words, let nothing in my soul's gesture or behavior obstruct sweet glimpses of thyself today. Uh, If we pray that prayer truly, we shall not, by little acts of careless rudeness, make it harder for others to see the Lord Jesus. And if anyone is inclined to think that rudeness and honesty run together, politeness and insincerity, I will tell you what I have found. The strongest, bravest, truest people I ever knew were or are the most gentle-mannered. gentle-mannered. Good manners are not among the things that do not matter. Can we imagine our Lord Jesus ever being rude? Wow. Wow. And I guess that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, where it's describing what supernatural heavenly love looks like, it says love is not rude. If we just took that one aspect of the gospel into our homes, our families, our marriages, our churches, people would then look in and say, I know that they're followers of Christ because of the love that they have for each other. So here's a key truth. Those small daily decisions to deny self and demonstrate Christ's love add up to a lifelong habit of demonstrating God's grace in all of our relationships. Of course, this doesn't mean we should never confront someone who's being hurtful or insensitive. When we talk about self-denial, people say, oh, is that, does that mean I just you know, ignore every concerning thing I see in anybody else's life? When we are walking in self-denial, we won't make the mistake of confronting others in a fleshly or ungodly way. We are called to speak the truth in love, not in rudeness or in irritation. And that's the difference. We can call things out of other people's lives if it's the right time and place and we have a position to do that. We can go to people in our life and tell them that their behavior is hurtful, but it has to be done in love, not in flesh, not in rudeness, not in irritation. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. John 3.34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
as Christ has loved us, we are called to love one another. And that is what you see in Darlene and her fellow missionaries. They were constantly sacrificing. I remember when Darlene, in her book, she talked about when she was called by the Kempeitai to go to that prison camp, which was the most feared place. It was where she was going to be sentenced to be executed as an American spy where she would be tortured. Everyone who, who went to the Kempeitai prison either came back completely broken or never came back at all. And they, they gave her 30 seconds to go grab some stuff from her room, and she grabbed this, like, robe, house coat kind of a thing. She was going to be in a cell where she could never really even get out. And when she got to the camp, she, she only had the clothes she was wearing in her Bible. They took her Bible away. She had her house coat dress thing that she had brought was the only thing she would have had to sleep on, a pillow for warmth, anything. But she knew one of her fellow missionaries had been in that prison for already two weeks and saw the condition that she was in. And so she asked one of the, the workers there to give that dress, that robe, to the other missionary. So she went into her cell with nothing because she gave the only thing she had to the other missionary. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There are a lot of moments when we can choose peace versus conflict, but we tend to choose conflict versus peace. When we deny self and love others sacrificially, we honor and worship the one who sacrificed everything for us. This is not an optional part of the Christian life. This is part of the gospel. And that is what I see so beautifully in Darlene and her fellow missionaries. And I continue to come back to the question, if they can love each other like that in the midst of the worst possible conditions, we as the body in these times, in this generation, can certainly learn to live in that kind of amazing unity by the grace of God. The second glimmer of gold that I, I caught from her life is reflecting the radiance of Christ, exuding the beauty of heaven. Now, at first, this may seem something more suited to the, the ladies listening to this message, but it's actually a truth for all Christians, men and women. But first, I want to explain how she was feeling when she had been a prisoner for so many years. These are excerpts from her book about how she felt about her physical appearance because she had been a young, fresh, beautiful 20-something missionary and war had just wasted her away. She said, I wore borrowed, ill-fitting clothes. A huge ulcer was eating into the flesh of one leg. My once soft and fair skin was scarred and mottled from the hours I had spent working in the beastly tropical sun to advance the Japanese war effort. The diseases of imprisonment, beriberi, malaria, and dysentery had left me frail and debilitated. I felt like an unkempt, bedraggled, skinny waif. So a lot of women can relate to that, you know, when you're not feeling your best. And she is feeling at her absolute worst, probably lower than she'd ever felt as far as, I feel good about how I'm presenting myself in the world. She was to the world. She was the opposite end of the spectrum there. And right around that time when she was just feeling her physical beauty waste away, there was this, like, debate, this childish debate that was happening in the barracks, in the concentration camp where she was. And there were some teenage boys that she was the barracks leader of one barracks, and there were some teenage boys that lived there. And then there was another barracks where another woman was the leader. And the boys got together, and they were kind of having one of those d debates on my dad can beat up your dad, that kind of thing. But they were like, my barracks leader is this, and my barracks leader is that. So they were just kind of competing and trying to make their barracks leader look a lot larger than life. And so they, they made up this that Darlene was a, a movie star, like a famous movie star from America, and she'd been in Hollywood, been in all these movies and stuff. And finally, that all these women kept asking her these questions, and so finally she went to the, the boys, and she's like, have you been telling people I'm some famous movie star from America? And they were all embarrassed, and they said yes. And she said, well, I understand what you're trying to do, but please don't tell lies about me, even though they're very nice lies. And they apologized, and they said, but 
just so you know, we really do think you look like a film star. And this is how she responded to that. Tears welled up. Thank you, boys. I know what you're trying to say, and I think you're the greatest. They made my day, for I felt it was the beauty of the Lord they had seen. I love that because we see the man looks on the outside, but God sees the heart. We see this incredible life and radiance of Christ coming through someone whose physical body is wasting away. That's just amazing. So true feminine beauty, this is specifically for women, but I'm just going to throw it in there because we see it in Darlene's life. Proverbs 31.25 says, a virtuous woman is clothed with strength and dignity. The word strength in this verse means supernatural valor, and the word dignity means glory, beauty, and splendor. These qualities cannot be found from any fitness routine, diet strategy, makeup technique, or clothing trend. They come from no other source but Jesus Christ. When a woman finds her satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ, she reflects his breathtaking valor and glory and beauty and splendor. Others notice him shining through her eyes, reflected in her smile radiating from her demeanor, no matter what may happen to her physical body. And that's why you see the radiance of Christ even in old women whose physical beauty has long ago melted away. If they truly are in Christ, you see a radiance in their lives that is beautiful. And I've often told the story of those two Chinese girls who were kicked out of their homes for their faith in Christ, went on foot from village to village. They had nothing. And they had nothing that teenage girls would normally have to make themselves attractive to the world. Probably didn't even own a hairbrush. But people came up to them on the street everywhere they went and said, why are you so beautiful, radiant? Why are your faces so shiny? It was the love, the beauty of Christ that was coming through their lives. And like I said, this is not just a truth for women. We are all called to reflect the radiance of heaven through our lives. Psalm 34, 5 says they looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. That's something every one of us is, is called to reflect the glory of God through our lives. The book of Acts tells the story of Stephen right before his martyrdom. It said that all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Because it was fixed on the glory of Christ, he was reflecting that glory in his face, and his face looked like the face of an angel, which is an incredible thought just to picture what that must have looked like to those people. Heavenly radiance is this. It's a lasting light that shines from the inside out, and it comes from a soul whose gaze is fixed upon him, Jesus Christ, from one who has been in the presence of the king. This happened to Moses. When the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Whenever Moses was in the presence of God, he had such a radiance on his face that the children of Israel wouldn't even be able to look at him unless he had a veil over his face. What an amazing picture of the glory that we are meant to radiate, the, the beauty of heaven through our lives. So how can we cultivate the beauty, the radiance of heaven within our lives? And God's answer, once again, is very simple. It's a very basic Christian principle, but we often overlook it. It's to decrease that he might increase. We have to get out of the way if we want his life to shine through us, his light to shine through us. And of course, that brings me back to one of my favorite verses from John the Baptist, where he says, I am only the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom himself. When the bridegroom is seen, my joy is complete. I don't care if people see me. I want them to see the bridegroom. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here's the key truth. We are called to get out of the way so that he can be clearly seen in and through us. We are called to fix our gaze upon him and let others follow our gaze upward. 
Ian Thomas probably expressed this more beautifully than any other quote I've ever heard about reflecting Christ through our lives. It can't be about us. The Christian life can only be explained in terms of Jesus Christ. If your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, your personality, your willpower, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. Are we getting out of the way, putting all self aside and saying, I want to reflect the glory of Christ as people encounter me every single day? They may not say you look like a film star, but they will notice something different about your life, and it has nothing to do with physical appearance. It has everything to do with where the gaze of our soul is fixed and if we are willing to decrease so that he would increase in our lives. Another glimmer of gold that I, I caught in Darlene's story is reckoning the truth. One of the most basic foundational truths that we teach here at Ellerslie is reckoning the truth, and that is choosing fact over feeling, choosing biblical fact over feeling, and building our life around God's biblical fact, God's unchanging truth, taking it to the bank, saying this is my reality. It doesn't matter what past experience says. It doesn't matter what my current situation says. It doesn't matter what my emotions say. I reckon God's word as true, no matter what. I saw such an incredible picture of this in Darlene's life. When she was a prisoner on death row in the Campeitai prison, she talked about the fact that her cell became her sanctuary. It was not a place where she was fighting against those bars, those walls, because the presence of God, the, the sense of God's presence was, presence was so real to her, she didn't want to be anywhere else. It was like this amazing, beautiful fellowship and communion with him. But one day, there was a time when suddenly she felt that presence lift, and she didn't feel a Aware of the presence of God in that cell with her anymore. And that was all that she had. She had nothing else to live for, nothing else to keep her going every day. So it really sent her into a panic. And this is how she explained that scenario. Quite suddenly and unexpectedly, I felt enveloped in a spiritual vacuum. Lord, where have you gone? What have I said or done to grieve you? Why have you withdrawn your presence from me? Oh, Father, in a panic, I jumped to my feet, my heart frantically searching for a hidden sin, for a careless thought, for any reason why my Lord should have withdrawn his presence from me. My prayers, my expressions of worship seem to go no further than the ceiling. All of us have probably been there in our walk with God. And that's right when the enemy pounces and says, he's not even real, he's not hearing you, none of his promises are true. They might be true for other people, they're not true for you. We've probably all heard that at different times in our Christian walk. Here's how she responded. I sank to the floor and quietly and purposely began to search the scriptures in my heart. I was aware that if I had unconfessed sin in my heart, he would not hear me. I knew of no unconfessed sin in my heart. Did not 1 John 3.21 state that if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God? My heart did not condemn me, and my confidence was in the person of my Lord, who never lies, who is faithful to his word. I quoted Numbers 23.29, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Lord, I believe all that the Bible says. I do, not walk, I do walk by faith and not by sight. I do not need to feel you near because your word says you will never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, I confirm my faith. I believe. The words of Hebrews 11.1 1 welled up unbeckoned in my mind. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence not seen, that was what I put my trust in. Not in moments of ecstasy, but in the unchanging person of Jesus Christ. Suddenly I realized I was singing, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground 
is sinking sand. I was assured that my faith rested not on feelings, not on moments of ecstasy, but on the person of my matchless, changeless Savior in whom there is no shadow of turning. That is incredible. That's what the title of her, her book came from, was that lesson learned in that prison cell on death row. It's such a vivid example of what reckoning the truth looks like in a very real situation. If Darlene can reckon the truth in a prison cell on death row, certainly we can do the same when we face challenges where we just don't see or feel the presence of God. We don't see him working in our life. We look to past experience. The enemy's trying to tell us that his word isn't true for us, even though it might be true for others. We can reckon the truth just like she did. Instead of panicking or despairing or being frustrated with God, she confirmed her faith. She said, it doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It doesn't matter what I'm sensing. It matters what your word says, and I confirm my faith in that word. So how can we reckon the truth in our lives? We talk a lot of it about this at Ellerslie, but as a reminder, we are to take God's word as fact. It's God's reality, living, a, living according to God's reality instead of any other reality that might be presented to us, including our own feelings. I love what Amy Carmichael, how she described it. She was crippled for the last 20 years of her ministry, someone who had been so active and so needed in her community, rescuing children, ministering to people, always busy, on her, always on her feet, always going, and then an accident happened and she was crippled. And she had a lot of moments and times in those 20 years where she was bedridden where she wondered, are the promises of God real? I have this experience staring me in the face. Are the promises of God, re God real? And this is something she wrote from her bed. This evening, the clouds lay low upon the mountains so that sometimes we could hardly see them. And sometimes the stars were nearly all covered. But always, just when it seemed as though the mountains were going to be quite lost in the midst, in the mist, the higher peaks pushed out. Even, even supposing the clouds had wholly covered the face of the mountains, the mountains would still have stood steadfast, and the stars would not have ceased to shine. I thought of this and found it very comforting, simple as it is. Our feelings do not affect God's facts. They may blow up like clouds and cover over the eternal things that we most truly believe. We may not see the shining of the promises, but they still shine. And the strength of the hills, that is his also. It is not for one moment less because of our human weakness. Heaven is no dream. Feelings come and go like clouds, but the hills and the stars abide. The word of God abides forever. And the most practical way I've been able to put this into practice in my own life is to simply start asking a new question. Not, how do I feel about this, but what does God say about this? Whenever I am dealing with a difficult situation or something unexpected happened or I'm confused about something, the natural tendency is to consult our emotions. How am I feeling about this? But to immediately stop and say, okay, first and foremost, what does God say about this? And then get your feelings to line up with God's reality, not just follow your feelings down whatever rabbit trail they want to lead you. What does God say about this? And that is what Darlene did in that moment in that prison cell. She didn't say, okay, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, what, take you know, this big introverted trip inside and examine all my emotions. She said, what does God say about this? She went straight to the word of God and reckoned the truth. The fourth glimmer of gold that I saw in this book, Evidence Not Seen, is being faithful unto death. And this is building a faith that grows stronger and not weaker. And so often in today's world, in modern Christianity, we are, are, we are around Christians whose faith 
grows weaker as time goes by, as things get more difficult, rather than stronger. And yet God has, has called us to have a faith that grows stronger and stronger even when we're facing death. And it says in Revelation 2.10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, that being faithful unto death describes Darlene and all of her fellow missionaries, many of whom lost their lives during the Second World War. But especially, I want to take a, a fresh look at Dr. Jaffrey, Darlene's spiritual father. She, he was the man who, when, she, when the war first broke out and all the men missionaries had been taken away to a concentration camp and they were all under house arrest and they had allowed Dr. Da Jaffrey to remain for a time with the women missionaries because he had so many health problems. And... I mean, the world is just falling apart. They can get no communication. They have no idea. The Japanese keep saying, you know, America's Navy has been sunk. It's at the bottom of the sea. You know, it's just a matter of time before we take over the world. And that was really the only news they were able to get. And so it just seems like everything is unraveling. But, but Dr. Jaffrey, he keeps his eyes on a much bigger goal, the goal of heaven. He, she walks into his study one night. It, her mind is on the war, the fact that her husband was just taken away, the fact that the Japanese seem to have total power and control here, and that America is not showing up. And her, her mind is on all these things. And Dr. Jaffrey's looking at this map of the unreached people groups in New Guinea, and he's, he's showing her on this map. As soon as this war is over, this is where we need to go. We need to go here and here, and then we're going to go here and here. And everywhere his, his finger rest in every new spot on that map, he would stop and pray for the unreached people there. His eyes were just fixed upon heaven's reality, and he was almost like unaware of the turmoil going on around because of the war. He, he constantly lived in that realm of seeing God's bigger picture. And he kept a heavenly perspective no matter what he was going through. So just for some context, he was nearing the end of his life. He's an older man. He had numerous very serious health conditions, a heart condition, a kidney condition, and he had diabetes. As it became clear that the Japanese were going to pretty soon put everyone into concentration camps, Dr. Jaffrey started to pray that God would heal him of diabetes so that he could endure in the concentration camp. He was never allowed to have sugar because it would send into him into a diabetic coma, which he had been in not long before the Japanese came. And so they stockpiled saccharin, this artificial sweetener, just so he would have some sort of something he could have besides sugar. And one day, as the time was drawing near for them to all go to the concentration camp, he started putting sugar in his tea. To the horror of his daughter, who always prepared these certain foods for him very carefully because of his diabetes, and he said to her, she was like, Daddy, how can you be doing this? I'm horrified. You're going to go into a coma. And his words to her were, Muggy, I'm healed. It's all right. That was his you know, declaration. I'm healed. And so they, this was over a period of a few weeks, they, they smuggled a urine sample to a doctor who lived in the town nearby. Somehow through this local person, they got the sample to him, they tested it, and it came back showing no trace of diabetes. And this is what he responded, you see, Muggy, the Lord healed me. I knew he had. And Darlene said, we spent a time of praise and thanking the Lord. He was preparing Dr. Jaffrey for a time when there would be no saccharin, only scant rations of sugar. The Lord is very good to those who put their trust in him. So here's this man with all these health conditions, this elderly man about to be thrown into a concentration camp, and that's his perspective. Well, God will give me what I need. If I need to be healed from diabetes to endure there, he'll heal me. Wow, that faith just baffles me. It's incredible. Later, 
After the war, Darlene found out more about what happened to, jo to Dr. Jaffrey after he was taken to the concentration camp. And I, I want to highlight how he responded in the midst of horrific conditions. He didn't change his heavenly perspective at all. So she wrote this. Mr. Presswood, who was one of the other men missionaries, later told me what a cruel, sadistic man their commander was, forcing them to work until they dropped with exhaustion, a work for which there was no rhyme or reason. He withheld food from them so that the men had to scrounge for anything edible, even leaves from the jungle trees. When they were given food again, their daily rations had been reduced to 280 calories. They were fired, they were fired, I think they were taken on a death march into the far interior after their camp had been bombed. Sorry, there's a lot of typos in this. For some time, they lived in pigsties. They were flooded out, then traveled through four to six inch deep mud, all the while enduring a reign of terror by the guards who beat the men unconscious for the slightest offense, then revived them by throwing water on them so that they could beat them again. Dysentery was an epidemic and more than 25 men died. Many others had beriberi, scurvy, and malaria. Now, listen to this line. Dr. Jaffrey kept busy writing Bible expositions in Chinese for the Bible magazine in a notebook. He always remained cheerful, encouraging the others. When their rations were cut so drastically, he weakened rapidly, and on July 29, 1945, he slipped quietly and triumphantly into the presence of God, the God he loved implicitly. Faithful soldier that he had been, his final battle won, he laid down his sword, and took up his crown of everlasting life. Here was a man who had poured out his whole life for missions, and he must have recognized the fact that his dreams of going further into the interior and reaching those unreached people would never be realized by him. All he could do was pray that somebody else would pick up that torch and run with it, because he knew he would, he was probably knew he was dying, but he remained cheerful, and he wrote Bible expositions in Chinese for the Bible magazine in a notebook. He also wrote a birthday card. He knew when Darlene's uh, birthday was, and he wrote her this card saying, I owe Darlene $25 payable after the war. So somehow that got to her after the war, after he had died. He was still thinking outward. He was still thinking, how can I encourage others? How can I lift up others around me? Even when he was in that desperate of a situation, that's being faithful unto death. And one of the things I, I did mention in the first episode I did on Darlene Dibler is that Dr. Jaffrey, that day when she walked into his study and he was showing her all the places in interior New Guinea that they needed to take the gospel, one of those areas was the Vistle Lakes. And after she went back to the States, she was convicted that God was calling her to go back as a missionary to that area, even though she had lost her husband. They were going to do it together. She said, I'm willing to go alone because I know God has called me. But then right as she was preparing to leave, God brought a man into her life who was also called to that area, who had seen a documentary about her first husband's trek into that area and wanted to meet her. They got together that God wrote this amazing story. They were married and they went together to the Vistle Lakes area. And they pioneered the work among the Donnie tribe who became a very, very strong influence for the gospel in New Guinea. And all of that was inspired by Dr. Jaffrey's praying and wanting to reach the unreached. He passed that vision on to Darlene and she and her husband went to that very same area after the war. It wasn't in vain. So how can we be faithful unto death? God's answer seems a little overly simplistic, but he says that we are not to fear death. It's actually supposed to be something that we look on with great excitement. 
Paul had this perspective when his life was at stake and he was held prisoner in a Roman cell. These are two things he said about death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's exciting. It's amazing. It's a privilege. If this happens to me, I will be ecstatic is what he's saying. Or in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It is better by far to depart and be with Christ. We don't often have that perspective, but I believe that is how Dr. Jaffrey and these other Christians were faithful unto death because they didn't look at death as something to fear. It was probably in their mind something to look forward to because they were being ushered into the presence of God. You see that in Stephen's life as he was being martyred. His only thought is, wow, I get to go into the glorious presence of my king. He doesn't even really care that they're stoning him because his eyes are fixed on Jesus. Otto Koning, a more modern missionary to the interior of New Guinea, a lot of his messages, he has the Pineapple Story series and some just great messages. He talks about one of the most impactful things in his ministry when the native people would see someone die who was a Christian. The way that they died versus the way that a non-Christian would die. When tribal people where he was ministering, when they would die and they didn't know Christ, they died in fear. They were The demons were coming for them and they would put on all these witchcraft symbols and they would scream and they would be in terror and it was just horrifying to watch a non-Christian die because they were spirit worshipers and they really had this awareness of demonic activity coming to take them probably, you know, away to hell and they were fearing that. They were probably catching glimpses of it. And then he would contrast that with those who had given their lives to Christ, those who died and they always died in peace and they always died with a smile on their face. And that was one of the reasons the gospel was able to come to that area where he was ministering to is because every one who grew up around this fear of evil spirits and this fear of dying said, this man is showing us how to die right. He's showing us how to die in peace, how to die with a smile on our face. If there's a way to die in peace, I mean, that, that was the one thing they all feared was dying and screaming and being taken away by these demons. And if there's a way to die in peace, we want more of that. So Otto Conan says, just so you know, the way that you die as a Christian makes a tremendous aspect on any, a, a tremendous impact on anyone who sees it. So when your time comes, be sure you die with a smile on your face. Plan it ahead of time, which is really funny to think about. Let's ask God for the grace to follow Dr. Jaffrey's example, these other missionaries' example, of being faithful unto death. Even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God can give us the grace to be cheerful and always busy about our Father's work, like Dr. Jaffrey was, not fearing death, but making the most of every moment that has been given to us. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There is nothing to fear, because when we cross that threshold, when we enter into eternity, we have something that Paul says is far better as I've said throughout this series and what I said earlier, our Christian heroes are not extraordinary people. They're not special Christians in every generation. They're simply men and women who yielded to Jesus Christ, holding nothing back. Gladys Elward, I, I quoted her in one of the earlier series where she says, I wasn't really probably God's first choice for going to China and being a missionary. It should have been probably a well-educated man who had a lot more strength and a lot more abilities than I do, but maybe he wasn't available, maybe he died, maybe he wasn't willing, and God looked down from heaven and saw Gladys Elward and said, well, she's willing. And God took that willingness and transformed China through her life. And that's what he can do through you and through me. 
We are not called to merely admire these men and women like Darlene Dibler and Dr. Jaffrey and Gladys Elward and Hudson Taylor. We are called to walk in their footsteps by the grace of God. This is not unrealistic Christianity. This is real Christianity enabled by the grace of God. There are no special Christians. There are only faithful Christians. And the question I want to ask all of us today is, will you and I be counted among the faithful? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would make us into faithful Christians. When we read these stories and hear these stories, sometimes it seems far removed from where we are at. But we know that your grace can do the impossible. We know that you can give us that miraculous love for the body of Christ. We know that you can allow your radiance to shine through our lives and equip us to decrease that you might increase in our lives. We know that you can equip us to be faithful unto death and to have that heavenly perspective, to not be led by feeling or emotion or circumstance, but to reckon your word as fact. Lord, we ask that your grace would do all of those miracles within us, that we would be like gold refined in the fire, that our lives would be among those that are counted faithful in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.